You're listening to the newest podcast from Radii China. Here we're going to talk to guests of different backgrounds from various industries, each with their own story, in the hope of challenging some of our own perspectives by hearing things from another angle. I'm Wes Chen, and you're listening to China from All Angles. And that was the eye-opening part, where you go to this village and you see these people. They have your pictures in their family temples, and they know you, but you've never met them. But they look like you, and they speak a dialect that you heard as a kid. So I'm like, wow, this is、uh, very interesting. But I need to learn more about kind of this world because it's it feels familiar, but it also feels very distant. So I had this. Life mission, which was to do something I could help the greatest number of people in the most meaningful way, is very interesting because Jack already had a very clear vision. He's very energetic about what he wanted to do. I was impressed that Joe was also making that kind of commitment. Someone with his background, he he doesn't take these decisions lightly. So it said to me, there's something quite significant there. So this is revolutionary. And a lot of what's happening in China today is a leading indicator of what digital technology can do for many industries. Think of it this way: the fastest-growing economy in the world was China. The fastest-growing industry at the time was the internet, and one of the fastest-growing companies in the internet in China was Alibaba. So you're at the center of the center of the center. It doesn't get much faster, more dynamic than that. China from all angles is brought to you by East West Bank. The premier financial bridge between the U.S. and China, East West Bank offers unparalleled services for individuals and companies who build connections between the two countries. East West Bank, bridging cultures, bridging opportunities, bridging dreams. For more info, visit eastwestbank.com. Member FDIC and equal housing lender. Today's China from All Angles guest is Radii's very own Brian Wong. He's an entrepreneur and innovator whose career has spanned e-commerce, education, and digital media. He was the first American and 52nd employee to join Alibaba Group in 1999, and today is the founder and chairman of Radii, a leading digital media company dedicated to bridging the understanding between youth in the East and West. So, Brian, I do know that you were born and raised in Palo Alto, California. Is that the place you still consider home? Uh, yeah, for sure.、Um, Palo Alto is where I grew up. Most of my memories are there or around that area,、um, and it was a very different place than it is today. So it was kind of a sleepy town,、uh, a lot of academics, a few tech nerds,、um, and a lot of of fruit orchards around.、Um, so not as not as sophisticated as it is today. Yeah, not as、um, I guess the term bougie. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah.、Uh, you know. Real estate prices there have gone up a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where I grew up. Definitely, I, I consider that home. Okay, you are third generation American-born Chinese. Yeah. So my grandparents all came from China, but even my maternal grandmother, amazingly, was born in America. She was born in 1901, I think, in in the United States. So. I'm like three and one quarter generation, I guess, depending on how you count it. Yeah, because so, how are you supposed to count it? I'm. I was afraid you're going to ask me that, Wes. I mean, I'm. <laughs> I was born in America, but my parents were born in China. Yeah. And I've been told I'm second generation, but I feel like that makes. So then that would make me. But it's called Ameri. ABC is like American-born Chinese. I feel like I would be the first generation that was born. Yeah. So、America. I guess it just depends where you start counting.、Uh, if it's the generation that moved to America as the first generation, that would make you second. But、right. if you were actually, if you start from the time that you're born in America, then you're the first. Okay. So then that would I'm either third second, or fourth or second no, or third. Yeah, second or third. Yeah. Okay. And、But I mean, old school. Like I mean, as early, almost as early as it gets with my grandmother. I don't know many people who have Chinese ancestry that was born、uh, in America that goes back, you know, like a hundred years. Most of them were just arriving late eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Yeah, I also have some friends who are probably at least half of their family 
is second or third generation yeah. as well. Rare breed. Is it? I think so. I think a bulk of a lot of the Chinese Americans um, that I know came around the 60s um, or the 70s, like the Taiwan. Sort so of, I know uh, there's three major influxes of Chinese people to America. Yeah. The first being probably your ancestors who came over and that was actually so when you think of you know gold rush 1949 it was more of a labor force yeah that went on for some time until chinese exclusion act and all Mm -hmm. those things happened Mm -hmm. and that's when a lot of chinese immigration stopped for probably a few decades i guess and then the next influx is when they opened up to uh, intellectuals or people with specialization in certain industries and that's when my father came in that group mm-hmm. and I guess the third one would be now which is foreign students who stayed yeah, well there was there was a wave I think in the 80s which so when you talk about gold rush time that was like late 1800s early 1900s but you're right the uh, anti-chinese immigration act kind of cut the uh, the flow quite a bit 18 I guess 1882 um, then there was the uh, I guess 60s 70s a lot of Taiwan immigrants at that time and then the 80s had a big influx or started the influx of mainland um, mm. uh, graduate students my father and mother used to host a lot of them at, in the Bay Area at Stanford and whatnot they were coming as a kind of PhD or graduate students and then I think you had also with that um, more people from Hong Kong and, and, and whatnot, kind of 80s, 90s. And I could have some, I mean, I'm, I'm probably maybe missing some of this. But yeah, I mean, now the, in the last two decades, a lot of um, mainland uh, immigrants coming for college, even for um, high school. But you have a, an interesting mix then of of different types of Chinese immigrants. Yeah, it's also something that I didn't know previously, but uh, after learning more about this history of Chinese immigration into America, that I realized that it was different types of people due to like different policies in America. Yep. Which created a total different experiences depending on when your family actually moved here. Yeah, that's right. And it also was shaped, I mean, by the politics of the time. Right. So I think the earliest um, sort of formal, you know, sort of welcoming of of Chinese students into America, late 1800s, actually started, I think, with the reparations. I think after the Opium War, there was an effort to bring Chinese students, um, college students, to a lot of the East Coast schools. So there was was an element of that. And then, like you said, on the West Coast, there was the... um, gold rush that attracted a lot of people from what i'm told my great grandfather was like a merchant he was trading like rice and different things and they actually made multiple trips between say china and u.s doing trade and my father was supposed to actually go back to uh he was the firstborn son in america but they were all supposed to go back to china after that and then the uh, war broke out world war ii um so there was there was this expectation that you'd kind of go between um, the two countries, but you know there were a lo- there were a lot of things happening in China between the late 1800s and say World War II. Um, you know whether it's the famines in the late 1800s, the establishment of the Chinese Republic, you know from the Qing to the to the Republic, and then obviously the Civil War and mm-hmm. World War II. So it was a pretty tumultuous time. So I think the immigrants. We're kind of caught in the middle, mm-hmm. and um, uh, yeah, so so all those elements were at play. Being a third generation or second generation, however you want to uh, yeah, quantify it. that, yeah. Did you ever feel uh, like a disconnect to your roots growing up? Because maybe you know you, you definitely lose culture as the generations go by. I feel like mm. me even being like the first generation to be born there of my family. I definitely had, you know, having never, not really knowing where I was actually, where my family came from, just hearing a lot of stuff and seeing pictures. Yeah, well, I mean, I think 
growing up, you were always curious and you were kind of searching for what's that authentic cultural sort of identity. Uh, fortunately, like there was Chinatown in San Francisco. You could kind of go there and get a taste of what seemed like um, Chinese culture. And then, you know, when you'd go visit your grandparents, they'd, they'd always kind of tell you stories or you'd see symbols of that traditional Chinese culture. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is the Chinatowns in America are are sort of like these societies that are stuck in time. They're, they're like frozen uh, in a time of, you know, maybe almost like hundred years ago the architecture is what is traditionally like manchurian sort of inspired uh you know designs that that were famous in like the qing dynasty right so a lot of the the, the symbols you see there were, were were reminiscent of that era and a lot of the old culture is cantonese um influence because a lot of the uh, immigrants at that time came from southern china and a lot of the traditional beliefs have been preserved. So on the one hand, while it seems like it's stuck in time, it's also in some ways more authentic kind of traditional Chinese than what I've come to see in mainland China today. Mm. But when I was growing up, I was like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, this is sort of Chinese in, in, in some ways, but like there's also this other part of Chinese culture that I'm seeing like coming out of Hong Kong, which was much more contemporary and you had like pop music and you had people very stylish, almost trendy. And, and you'd see those images, you'd see TVB. Um, and I was like, okay, that's also part of Chinese culture. And then you saw, you know, the mainland opening up mainland China. And as I met people coming from there or when I started to travel there um, as a student in college, I said, well, there's, there's also the emergence of, of this aspect of Chinese culture. So what exactly is Chinese culture? I was really curious. And so I think that's kind of what prompted me to go visit so much when I was in college and after college because I was really trying to figure out uh, what exactly constitutes a Chinese identity. So when was your first trip? Yeah, my first trip was, I think, 1985. I went with my father, and I was quite young then, but my father was an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor, and he was actually very involved in training and hosting um, a lot of the early physicians that came from China to the United States to, to do their training. Where um, where were you? I was it? in Palo Alto. Oh, where did I go yeah. to visit? We went to uh, Guang. Guangzhou. So okay. stopped in Hong Kong, took a train to Guangzhou, uh, stayed at the state-owned hotels, the Garden Hotel. We also stayed once at a place called the White Swan, which is still around today. And my dad had these medical conferences that he attended, and I, I kind of tagged along. But then after that, we went to our family ancestral village, which was very interesting. That's in uh, Taishan and Zhongshan, which is where my father and mother were from. And that was the eye-opening part where you go to this village and you see these people. They have your pictures in their family temples and they know you, but you've never met them. Mm. Uh, but they look like you mm -hmm. and they speak a dialect that you heard as a kid. So I'm like, wow, this is uh, very interesting, but I need to learn more about kind of this world because it's it feels familiar, but it also feels very distant. So you were... 11, 12 at the time? Yeah, I was like 10 or 11. I went twice. So I think it was, I can't remember. It was 84, 85 or 85, 86. So I went two consecutive years. And yeah, it was. I was in middle school at the time. Okay, yeah. so that must have been a very eye-opening experience. Yeah, it was. Because I think it opened another world of um, a cultural dimension. So America is a country of immigrants, right? And we just arrived at different times. But but all of us, except for the Native Americans, really have cultural roots that come from elsewhere, whether you're European, you're Hispanic, or you're Asian. And what I've thought about over the years is kind of how does that identity um, form as an American? And I think we're all American by nationality and also by culture. But we also relate to a second culture, which is why there's hyphenated Americans. Um, you're Italian-American, you're Irish-American. And, you know, on the East Coast, you have a bigger European-American population. But there are those who still relate to their Italian roots or those in Boston talk about their Irish roots. And 
I think on the West Coast, you have a much larger Asian population. And whether you're Chinese, Korean, or Japanese, there's still elements of that. Yeah, I just don't think it's necessarily exactly the same for some reason. First of all, I don't think many Caucasians in America consider themselves as European Americans or uh-huh. Irish American. They just say that they're American. Yeah. And then if you really pry, then they'll say, oh, I'm a quarter Irish. And you Sure. Know. But uh, the experiences that we just talked about, I don't actually know how many of them have ever been back to their ancestral, of, yeah, yeah. ancestral origin yeah. or even have that something that makes them feel like they want to go to their ancestral origin because they don't feel different where they are in America, mm. whether it's Boston or San Francisco. Yeah. So for some reason, I feel like if you look different and are treated slightly differently, it'll kind of make you want to go seek out, okay, where, where, but if, if you're not treated differently, then even though you might look different, you may not even have that urge. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And, and part of the search for the other identity might partly be pushed or, or prompted by how people perceive you in America. But I will say that in the West Coast, where I grew up, while I felt, you know, I was aware of the fact that I was considered a minority, I never felt that I was out of place because I think there were enough of us or I just grew up in a community that was quite welcoming and sort of celebrated diversity, which I I feel quite fortunate about. But um, why, you know, say... Caucasian Americans might not feel as as close a tie to their European roots could be one that they feel like America is much more a part of their identity than their, uh, their, their cultural heritage Two, It might be, they have such a blend and mix of what we would call ethnicities or, or, you know, European um, heritage that it's hard to say I'm one Mm. or the other. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that might be part of it. Another example that, you know, we haven't even brought up is African-Americans who are, you know, the hyphen is used yes. uh, when referring to African-Americans. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a very small percentage who have ever gone back to Africa or even want to go back and see what it's about, how it is. But I feel like that experience would be something for all immigrants in America to sort of realize that, you know, we are all more similar than we are different, you know. But yes. it's just surprising to me that, you know, it's 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 often mostly Asian Americans that go back or end up going back. And, and So I, I've got a theory on that, Wes. I mean, interesting you brought up African Americans. Um, I spent a little time over there on, on work trips and I went to Ghana of all places in Accra is a place where uh, a lot of the, in the early days, the, the slaves actually were shipped out of Africa to the West uh, in, in places um, like America or, or elsewhere. And, um, you know, these, these slaves at the time came from all parts of Africa, but they, they all left from that port. And, um, you know, there was a movement, I think, in the late 50s or 60s to kind of rediscover, uh, you know, the roots of, and, and for, for many African-Americans and they traveled to the region. Um, I think Liberia was Liberia, set up as a country yeah. for African-Americans at one point, but there's also a lot of, there is a diaspora obviously of Africans that are all over the world, the Caribbean, United States and, and, and elsewhere. And, and as an, as a Chinese American, I actually think my identity as an American is strengthened when I have closer understanding of where I came from, because I have a um, a contrast or, or a juxtaposition of kind of these two identities that helps me clarify what it means to be American, what it, what you know, the value of that identity, and uh, also it helps me appreciate the heritage I come from of being Chinese, and it gives me a sense of of more sort of clarity, and I think that if all of us on some level could sort of understand that dichotomy or that contrast, it might actually help us strengthen 
a sense of who we are. Instead of having other people tell me who I am, like as an Asian American, if I had no ties to my Chinese roots and someone said, you know, you're nothing but a whatever, slanty eyed, you know, little whatever, um, you know, that's going to have a huge impact on me because those are people around me defining who I am. Whereas if I have an understanding, well, no, there isn't just one definition that somebody's ascribing to you and i and here's a country of 1.4 billion people that are tall and short fat and skinny smart and dumb uh they're doctors and engineers but they're also you know artists and like construction workers suddenly you realize no there's there's many dimensions to this identity or this hyphenated name that that we've been given and you're not subscribing to just one stereotype and I think that's liberating and you know when I traveled to a place like uh, you know the African continent which is by the way massive you can't make a judgment on just a Africa, continent, continent right, right. Um, but you would go to places like whether it's Ghana or you would go to South Africa or you go to Rwanda you go to Ethiopia and you realize just how diverse the continent is and how it's a huge mistake to try and just describe one stereotype to one group of people which is what happens so much in America mm -hmm. because we in America have a limited exposure to these things right yeah okay uh, that's a long answer I'm gonna try to pull it back a little bit to your upbringing so I also understand that you got your pre-med and English literature degree from Swarthmore yeah. in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I just wonder how it was that you didn't end up going to Stanford being from Palo Alto. Yeah. Well, maybe it's partly because I grew up in Palo Alto and I didn't have a desire to actually go to school at a place I spent the first 18 years. Um, and... I don't even remember if I applied. Uh, if Maybe if I applied, maybe part of it was I didn't get in. I don't know. But it wasn't really – I wanted to get out of California. Okay. And I've always, I was always curious about the East Coast. You know, everyone said, well, you want a rigorous education, go to the East Coast. And then it was really about do you want to go to a big school, you want to go to a small college. And at the time, the thing that most people were doing were going to these small liberal arts colleges. And so I ended up going there. Uh, and it was a very um, – you know, it's very, how should I say, life-shaping experience. So pre-med and English literature. Yeah, schizophrenia. W what were your aspirations at that time? Well, my aspirations were to, like, be a doctor and join Médecins Sans Frontières, which is, like, this um, medical group that goes to, like, war zones or disaster zones and helps people in, in like, developing countries and then write about it. Wow, that's a very <laughs> clear aspiration, no, <laughs> which puts you on the pre-med and English lit path, I guess. Well, I don't know if I um, I back-ended into that or I <laughs> thought about what I wanted to do and created the major. I had other aspirations. Like, I wanted to also be like, um, I think it was computer science and like art history or something. It was very random, and my father um, sort of advised me to think about that and maybe... Uh, do something a little more traditional, and um, that's you know obviously because he was a doctor. But I definitely thought that I needed to do something that was going to be more exciting than just going to a, a clinic every day and seeing patients. Although I think that that was rewarding, I I felt a need to like get out of the standard environment, and uh, I was definitely interested in seeing the world. So I think that's kind of how it all fit together. But I but I definitely valued the kind of creative aspect of life. I wanted to see what you could do beyond just the standard kind of career path. Mm -hmm. So English lit was was a luxury. Like I, I think I was curious in a, about it because it allowed me to kind of see the world from different perspectives. Like I was involved in music. Um, I was curious about art, but I didn't think I could make a career out of it. But you can make a hobby out of writing. And then you, I think what I, th I saw the pre-med track was it would give you tools to actually help people. So I had this life mission, which was to do something I could help the greatest number of people in the most meaningful way. And that's why health, you know, healthcare was um, a good choice. 
So you graduate, but you don't go into medicine, uh, nor do you start writing at the time. You end up working as special assistant to San Francisco mayor at the time, Willie yeah, Brown? That's right. Downtown Willie Brown. So this was an opportunity presented to you, or is it something that you wanted to get involved in because it was affecting the area where you came from, where you, where you grew up, or politics in general was something that was interesting to you at that time? So think of it this way. I set that long-term goal, help the greatest number of people in the, great, in the most impactful way, but I didn't know actually how I would get there. Um, public health or being a doctor you know, working in emerging markets seemed like a good idea at the time, but it got derailed because of my China experience. Mm. Um, not that it couldn't have been, uh, you know, sort of uh, consistent with that goal, but when I went to China for grad school, I, I figured before med school I'd take a year off and just do something interesting. So I said, I'm going to take a year off and go be a grad student in China through this Johns Hopkins Center in Nanjing. And my thesis there was um, on you know how open door reform impacted health policy in China. So it was still along the lines of what I wanted to do. But then I started to see how there are other ways to help people in society besides just being a doctor. You know, and that's when it got into this whole thing of economic development and you know private investment and what we would call you know capitalism or business. And it was like I always thought business was just bunch of greedy people trying to make money and then I saw how it was changing society in a place like China which was just you know starting to open up so my first job actually was not at the mayor's office it was actually working as a, a consultant a management consultant in China doing you know these projects helping multinationals enter the region and that was really interesting but then the financial crisis happened in 1997 and my consulting firm sent me to San Francisco and so I worked out of San Francisco uh, doing projects, but it was a lot different. It was a lot more kind of corporate, and I wasn't on the frontier, like going visiting factories and riding on the back of a motorcycle, you know, seeing uh, clients and whatnot. So it was, it was much more um, kind of proper, and I didn't feel like that was what I wanted to do. So uh, fortunately, a friend introduced me to the opportunity to work for the mayor, and he was looking for someone that can manage both Pacific Heights, which is kind of like the yuppies, you know, um, kind of the more affluent area, and also managed Chinatown as the ombudsman for the mayor's office. What that means is you're basically, you take care of all the all the issues before the mayor has to get involved. And uh, because I came from Palo Alto and i just come back from China, I kind of had the profile that I could manage both the Chinatown community and the Pacific Heights people. So... They hired me, and that was eye-opening because the reason I wanted to do it is I wanted to see how public sector played a role in helping the community, and it was, it was a memorable experience for sure. But in no way did you, from that experience, one day want to become the mayor yourself. No, I, I actually thought it was the right time for someone from the— uh, Chinese American community to become mayor of San Francisco, but clearly I was too young at the time. I was 25 or something. But I said one day that would be a very interesting job because, uh, you know, I think that San Francisco is the gateway, uh, both in and out, uh, between America and Asia, and China being a big part of that. So that was something I, I entertained uh, down the road. But what I, what I realized is I needed a lot more skills before I could even consider. Uh, being an effective um, political contributor. Um, and some people make politics their life, which mm -hmm. is admirable. But the problem with that is if you're too deep in it, you become too dependent on the institutions around you to support you. I thought an alternative way would be to go out, get life experience, make a little bit of money, and then come back to it and uh, contribute without a lot of the um, pressures of, of the, the, these special interest groups. Of course, that's pretty idealistic. You always have special interest groups, but maybe you can at least try and represent yourself more independently. Right. There's a difference between being involved in politics and being a career politician. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
I mean, look, I have a lot of admiration for people who have committed their lives to public service. But um, for me, it, it just it looked like a difficult path for me to navigate. So I decided to step out and then, uh, you know, do do other things first. Okay. With that being said, tell me how and when did you meet Jack Ma and Joe Sai? Well, I met uh, Joe. Um, I think it was 1998 at a at a at a friend's uh, Christmas party. So there's an individual who was a mentor to me, and he invited me. You know, I knew him in Hong Kong. I was living in Hong Kong, and he'd always invite me to his Christmas party. And I met Joe at that event in 1998 in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, and uh, you know, obviously very accomplished, and you know, he's working at a private equity firm at the time. Uh, but then a, a year later, this uh, mentor said, "Hey, you know, remember meeting Joe? He's actually going to be um, joining this uh, internet company called Alibaba. He's one of the." F- founding investors and he's building an international team so maybe you should meet him and I was in San Francisco already at that point working for the mayor and um, he said he's going to be coming through uh, the Bay Area to do some fundraising you you know I'll hook you guys up again via email so Joe came through and he was with Jack you know the founder of um, Alibaba and we met at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco 1999 I think I think it was September. I can't remember the exact month, but yeah, that was the first time we met and um, met Jack. is very interesting because Jack already had a very clear vision. He's very energetic about what he wanted to do. I was impressed that Joe was also making that kind of commitment. Someone mm-hmm. with his background, he he doesn't take these decisions lightly. So it said to me there's something quite significant there. But also for me, the concept of Alibaba made a lot of sense. I spent the year and a half of my time in China as a consultant running around doing due diligence for all these multinational companies looking for business partners in China, whether to manufacture and source from or partner with. And I was the guy manually going through like trade catalogs or going through directories in China, calling up these companies, doing the due diligence. And it was so inefficient. you know. And then there were there were trade shows. Um, the Canton trade show twice a year would have these um, exhibitions, and that's the the time that all the foreign buyers would go look right. for suppliers. But Alibaba, the concept made so much sense. It was a online directory that was being updated regularly that you know international buyers or companies could find suppliers from any industry just through the internet, and that was a pretty basic concept now we look at it but it was pretty breakthrough for the time okay most people who have not lived in china probably don't fully understand what alibaba and taobao are my only like layman way to describe what taobao is to uh, someone who doesn't know is it's like amazon and paypal on steroids but alibaba as you mentioned was something much bigger than that and I've also heard you say that Ali didn't necessarily intend on becoming what it is today. Yeah. So what would you say played a key role in taking it from whatever it was initially intended to become to what it is now? All right. That's a pretty big question, Wes. <laughs> I'm glad you asked me. I'm actually writing a book on this. I was going to get to that book. Okay, good. <laughs> it's called the, the the Tao of Alibaba. It'll be published at the end of 2022, okay. hopefully, knock on wood. But it goes through that evolution. And, you know, so, so Alibaba today is many things, as you said. It's a combination of, like, Amazon, eBay, PayPal, Amazon Cloud, Netflix, and a whole bunch more, mm-hmm. okay? I generally don't like to use, you know, corollaries in the West because that kind of limits it because what Alibaba is now is, a, is an ecosystem and in some ways an economy in its own right. Uh, it started out as a e-commerce marketplace um, just for wholesale trade, and then it evolved into these other pieces, uh, um, you know, retail, payment, cloud computing, logistics, entertainment, health, and uh, now it's it's moving into kind of more industry digitization through its um, cloud business as well. And 
the path for Alibaba was not one that was planned out 20 years ago. It sort of evolved, and it evolved based on trying to identify problems in society, largely in China, and how to solve them using technology. So it was an organic process, but also had a goal, which was to um, you know, really make the supply chain more efficient by creating these, um, these uh, businesses. And um, I, I think that what makes Alibaba unique is that it grew out of a market that started with nothing. So when, when Alibaba was, was founded, there were 8.8 .8 million internet users in the country. There's very rudimentary retail business. There was a very rudimentary banking uh, system with very little credit card penetration. The logistics infrastructure was all government postal service. And... Um, yeah, I lived here th throughout that time, so I know you guys. You guys changed everybody's life, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to imagine what it was like before Taobao, but I can remember, right? Just yeah. trying to get a pair of Nike sneakers probably took, or something for your home. Yeah, like you know, you would have to go to these state uh, department stores and. You couldn't find what you're looking for. Actually. Yeah, or these like rundown versions of what you would think of as Home Depot in America, yeah. and just like looking for a part to something. And, oh yeah. And now it's you know everybody's everybody's home and life is a thousand times better. Yes. Because of exactly Alibaba. So each of these businesses solved problems. For example, B two B solved this issue of uh, bridging Chinese manufacturers to the world because that was the time the China entered the WTO. Taobao solved the whole retail problem because, like you said, you didn't know where to go to find things. No one really knew how to find products because the, the retail infrastructure was so poor. Um, there were no shopping malls to actually go go find these. And so you kind of leapfrogged that whole offline retail development stage and went straight to online. Uh, there was low trust in doing business. Uh, like people... You'd see them at a marketplace one day selling a bunch of stuff, and you'd buy it, you take it home, it didn't work, and you, you go back to return it, they're, they're not gone. there, Yeah. right? So payment and trust was, was um, this whole issue was solved because of Alipay, and, and now it's called Ant Financial, because you had an escrow system that allowed you to make sure you got what you wanted, and then you released your payment, and then there were enough transactions over time that happened, you can get actually a credit score, so you knew if someone was reliable. Um, and so on and so on. You know, Tainao, the logistics system, totally revolutionized uh, logistics such that now you can get something within 24 hours, sometimes when you order it, and you can track it down to the, you know, the minute where it is, and uh, it's it's cheap. You know, it, the, the cost that um, logistics constitutes of, of, of your product price is much smaller proportionally than what it would cost in the U.S., um, and so all these problems have been solved. And now Alibaba has moved on to not only solving those problems, but it's actually digitizing the entire value chain of uh, businesses and industries in China, um, whether it's manufacturing. So now it's helping a lot of businesses that can predict what the demand will be so they don't have to act, make excess inventory, and, and that reduces waste. Uh, they're helping hospitals become more efficient in terms of how they manage the patients. They're helping media companies um, manage their content through cloud, and um, you know a lot and sell tickets. You know, say for cinema, uh, and so so this is revolutionary. And a lot of um, what's happening in China today is a leading indicator of what digital technology can do for many industries. You became the first. American and the overall 52nd employee of Alibaba at the time? Yeah, I'm old, old guy. <laughs> now there's probably, I don't even want to even try to guess the number of employees. Well, it's 250,000. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do recall that there was a time after you joined Alibaba that you left yeah. and actually left China Yeah. and then ended up coming back. Yes. So... What were the reasons at the time why you left? What were the reasons why you came back? Yeah. And yeah, let's just start there. Okay. Yeah, it's like my badge of honor. It's a little embarrassing, but I'm, I did leave. I actually left twice and went back each time. And, you know, most people would say, dude, just make up your mind. 
but my life, I think, is just a, a eternal journey of searching for the best answers and things. And the first time I left was uh, we went through a major um, transition because we we grew very quickly. We hired a lot of international people. We we burned all our money uh, to to an extent that we had to let a lot of people go. <clears throat> this was like two years after we the Alibaba started, and then. Um, you know, there was requests I could stay, but I had to move back to Hangzhou because I had left Hangzhou to go to Hong Kong, and I was pretty happy there. And you have to move back, take ha you know a salary cut in half, although they would give you more shares, which you know I was like, a yeah, big mistake to not take that. But I, I had the option of going to business school, so I mm. thought going to business school would be the best way for me to learn more about business and good for my long-term career. So I so I left the company. And then I worked, uh, after business school, I worked in New York for two years with a very sort of prestigious like management training program at a large media conglomerate. And I think I just realized that what I was doing there was very interesting, but the pace of, of growth and change as I was experiencing there was not comparable to what you would see in China. Mm. And it just so happens that I, I again met with Jack and... Um, a number of other people that were in New York on a trip and, and I was talking to Jack about advice on how to make the most of you know, my work opportunities and be entrepreneurial and he said, well the best thing for you to do is just come back and help us globalize. So that's what got me back. I obviously don't regret that because the things that you're doing in a very dynamic high growth company that's at the, at the frontier of change um, you know, are, are are pretty one of a kind for your life. Think of it this way. At that time, the fastest growing economy in the world was China back in, this is like 2005 when it back, went back. The fastest growing e industry at the time was the internet. And one of the fastest growing companies in the internet in China at that time was Alibaba. So you're at the center of the center of the center. It doesn't get much faster, more dynamic than that. And uh, I think that's what attracted me to go back. You were ultimately a VP of Alibaba and special assistant to Jack Ma. Mm. Uh, again, a special assistant for the second time. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm assuming this was like a totally different set of responsibilities in the first uh, role of special assistant. What does being Jack Ma's special assistant involve? Well, I'll tell you one thing I realized, any special assistant, I just don't think I'm cut out for the job <laughs> because it requires you to be Superman and, uh, you know, on 24-7. I think uh, I, f I didn't do a good job or as well as I should have in many re regards or many respects, but I definitely learned a lot and I'm grateful for that opportunity to do that role. I think any special assistant, especially in whether it's working for a politician or a business, um, you know, a leader is that you've always got to be thinking, uh, from the perspective of his or her position. Like you have to anticipate and help them do their work better by anticipating and clearing the way for them. Uh, you also have to represent them, uh, in various capacities and think about what it is that they would want in that situation. And so it, it forces you to raise your level and think from a, a different perspective that you normally wouldn't put yourself um, obviously you're going to make mistakes. And if you have a boss who is tolerant enough, then you're lucky because then you can learn from those mistakes. But I think more than anything, it allowed me to see the world from a perspective that I probably would never have the chance to do, whether it's sitting in the meetings with him, whether it's hearing discussions or being part of a discussion on issues that are pretty significant, you know, that relate to global trade, relate to you know, helping countries with their digital uh, strategies. I mean, literally, you'd have ministers and presidents coming to us, uh, you know, to Jack, asking for his advice on how do I create a more inclusive digital finance ecosystem in a country of, you know, 300 million people, or in the case of India, is like, you know, a billion people. What a unique opportunity to be part of that conversation, even just listen in, right? Um, but then there's always work that has to be done after that. And that's where I think a good assistant or chief of staff plays a, a major role, where I probably could have done a better job. <laughs> I'm sure anybody who had that role would end up saying the same thing afterwards. Nah, if they have good self-awareness. But I've seen people do really good, 
work at that, and I admire that. Yeah, those individuals. So you're not with Ali any longer. Yep. This time around, it was more of a decision about where you wanted to live, starting something new. Yeah, and I think I feel like my time had finally come where I had done as much as I can or should for the organization and that there's a lot of great people that are there now that can kind of carry things forward. Um, you know, my focus was always on international mm -hmm. business. And the last three years, I started to really focus on education. And that was very rewarding. That's when I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and Africa working with entrepreneurs and sharing our lessons. And I think that's something I will continue to do. That's why uh, I wanted to write this book is to promote um, the learnings from Alibaba over the last 20-something years. And I think that's valuable for anyone, um, whether you're in an emerging market or whether you're in a developed market. <clears throat> because let's face it, if, if you're in America, you still want to know how some of the great Chinese um, companies think about their strategy, um, what motivates them, how, how they, they manage their organization. Uh, and you know, if you're in a, an emerging market, you want to see how an organization started in a market that had nothing and created something of such significance. Uh, so, so there's value in those lessons. But the reason why I left at that time is I felt my time had come and also there were other priorities like a family. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something, it's, it's the most rewarding thing. I never really believed it when people say that. I'm like, oh, that sounds really good, but whatever. You know, Until it happens. Until it happens. So I'm actually at that stage now, a little later than most. And uh, I, I'm curious, I'm going to try new things. And um, so, you know, I'm doing Radii now, which Wes, you, you're part of helping us, which I'm grateful for. But it, it's a new challenge. And I've, you know, I've always wanted to do something in media because I think that has the impact to influence in the same way. Remember I, when I started, greatest good for the greatest number. Mm -hmm. And right now, media <clears throat> can be both uh, a, a, a solution for, for creating good in society. It could also be something that will create a lot of bad things. And I think we're kind of like in the middle there. We see how media is destroying communities. It's destroying society. But why don't we use it to build up society and, and create something positive? The pen is mightier than the sword, even though yeah. we don't use the pen very yeah, often these keyboard. days. Your the, keyboard. Yeah, the keyboard. Yeah. So you started Radii four years ago. Yeah. I would say the state of media now is exponentially worse than it was four years ago even. Worse meaning? More polarized. Okay. Yeah. Less trustworthy. Mm. Maybe it's always been that way, but I think in just the recent year and a half with pandemic and vaccines and social injustice and even like the polarization of different, you know, major media platforms that used to be, you know, relied on as the main source of news or content has just lost a lot of uh, trust with, with people, especially just in the last year or so. Yeah. But radio, I actually, I mean, started so what i'm saying is four four years ago where i feel like that wasn't really maybe it was an issue it was just maybe just not everybody really realized it until recently is it something that you realized for you like then or was there another agenda or just a passion for media in general yeah i think i saw the writing on the wall back then partly because i was so close to it because you know so I started Radii when I was still at Alibaba, obviously, mm -hmm. and, and I had a, a team that was really driving this, and um, I'm grateful for that team that uh, really kind of carried the torch, but I, I, w I wanted to support them as best I could. But the pr thing that prompted me to set up the company is that I felt that there was uh, so much <clears throat> urgency in creating something that could tell a different side of what was happening in China. I, at the front lines, would always um, see kind of how the media was covering our company, uh, Alibaba at the time. And up to the IPO, it was like the darling of the financial media, right? It was like the, the best thing in the world and people were nothing but praising this company that was, you know, having its time 
in the limelight, largest IPO in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But a year later, everything turned, and suddenly everyone's like, you know, this company is a fraud, the numbers are fake, it's the next Enron. And I said, how could all this happen in one year, such a major change in attitude? And I realized that this isn't the company, it's the perceptions of uh, China being kind of projected onto a company. And all the fears and the the stereotypes and, and the perceptions were being reflected in the criticism of Alibaba at the time. So there is still a distrust. And then you looked at the surveys uh, in terms of countries' branding and how they perceive countries, and you could see this growing negativity around China, um, a lack of trust in, in these things. So I asked myself, why is that? And I realized that increasingly the stories that were being told in the mainstream media about China were no longer positive or talking about the constructive things that were happening in the country or even about the people, but it was really about kind of this growing threat. And you started to hear murmurs of uh, the rise of China and how it's going to um, kind of challenge the Western dominance and Theodicity's trap and all this. So you could already see it uh, back in 2017. So I said, technology, one thing that it's allowed is actually for the democratization of media. So social media allows everyone to have a voice in, in, on a large scale. Um, is that a good thing per se? Well, in principle, yes, but when it gets utilized and abused, then maybe it's not a good thing, but it definitely, for the right voices and in, in, in constructive conversation, I think it's a good thing. Second is the cost of producing media is being lowered because of technology. So you have things like YouTube and you have digital technology. Look, you're producing your own podcast. In the mm -hmm. old days, that would be like a radio station. You need infrastructure. You need to be able to broadcast that. So it was the right time to actually create a media organization that provided a different perspective because the costs in, in the technology allowed for that. So then, you know, I just put in some of my own money, raised a little bit more with, with friends that cared about the same issues, and, and we started uh, Radii. 2017 is pretty much also the onset of the Trump era. Oh, yeah. Would you say that had something to do with it or even let's say if he wasn't elected, would it even have mattered? Would it still have kind of played out in this direction? Maybe not as, uh, yeah, or not as volatile as it is? Maybe. Uh, I think this is a pretty unanimous position between Democrats and Republicans is the threat that China poses. A lot of the, the threats, though, or the, the imagined fears are just that, I think, are imagined. But... Again, they become lightning rods for for rallying support. And I think that what we have to look at is really kind of a balanced approach in, in how we uh, deal with this situation. I think the bigger issue in my mind is how do we make America uh, more competitive, not how do we tear down China or any other country that's competing. And I think you need to learn from Competitors. I mean, actually, in business, while a lot of people fear competition, uh, a constructive approach is to learn from the competition. It'll make you better. And we, we should be doing that. Um, I've always felt that we should be investing more in our innovation and technology. We've gotten off, you know, I told you when I started this talk, when I grew up in Palo Alto at a young age, it was very different because people valued technology for the innovation and the creation and the, the things that it could do to change society. And now I think it's become very transactional. Everybody's in a rush to, to go public with whatever company they're starting. And they're not actually thinking about how this, they're not, they're not enjoying the process of, of innovating. And that is what gave people pride in the things that they created was coming up with something novel and different. Not, oh, I made a billion dollars uh, off this startup. Now I'm off to the next one. Mm -hmm. And so that... I think that we have to go back in America to think about what we need to do to improve ourselves, not to beat China or some other country, but to make America the kind of uh, society that we want it to be. When we promote these values and these ideals, are we truly meeting that standard for ourselves, not for anyone else? You know, there's this weird phenomenon. The word winning has become such an important part of American vernacular and I'm not quite sure why it's so important to win every time 
or what that means. But it's it's like it's a badge of honor. We're winning. We're winning. We're winning. But winning what at the expense of what? Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, part of the policy now I see in America is like, how do we tear down the competition so that we can stay number one, as opposed to how do we raise ourselves up to to go beyond uh, the competitor? And, and America's still number one across virtually every one of these uh, sort of measurements, but. Why don't we investing in ourselves to stay number one as opposed to invest in some policy or bill that is going to be geared to tearing down and creating chaos, uh, you know, the competition? I I don't think anyone wins from that. Is the common enemy factor have its pros to keeping a country together? For example, like now, you know, China is the common enemy. Maybe in the 80s, it was Russia. Yeah. And then in the 90s, it was the terrorism, the extremism. Right. right. Is that the only way that America knows how? Or or has that just worked in the past? For sure. It's uh, it's not just America. It's just human beings, right? A common enemy is the, the best way to mobilize uh, a society. But I think what we should be focusing on in terms of the common enemy isn't like a country that is a critical part of the solution to a much bigger problem. Uh, the common enemy is these existential challenges like climate change and pandemics and nuclear proliferation, which require both U.S. and China to work together. I mean, I think the best example is, what was that movie, uh, Independence Day? Or right, something? when the aliens, if there were yeah. aliens. Reagan also had a quote that if aliens were ever to come, then everyone who's having a war right now in America would you know, drop their weapons or stop pointing them at each other. And- exactly. So you would have hoped that COVID was going to be that common enemy, but we were so stuck in our um, parochial sort of mindset that we have to point the finger at someone. It became, uh, you know, a much more destructive thing. I mean, the the analogy I think um, someone has used is you have like two apes fighting in a jungle um, while the jungle is on fire, and they're so busy fighting one another they don't even know that the the area around them is is on is is burning. Mm-hmm. That's essentially the world today, and we're going to keep beating each other up while we all go up in flames. Nobody's going to win from that. Yeah, I just have this uh, other perspective on this issue is like another common enemy is actually ourselves. The whole instinct to have to have an enemy in order to bond together, that is the enemy right there. Like once you can figure that out within yourself, then when everybody can figure that out, then I think, you know, we can stop being used as pawns for whatever. Yeah, I mean... Wes, that's higher level thinking. You know, <laughs> you, you're putting a lot on on the average Joe to like be able to realize that. But I agree. And you know, one saying that uh, that Jack used to say is, "If you want to change the world, first change yourself." I agree in that one thousand percent. And I'm sure Jack's not the first person who said that. You know, that's probably a Buddhist saying, right? That's your four she coming up. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I think we've uh, we've gone full circle here. One more time, I think, before we end um, the Tao of Alibaba. Yeah. So this is something that you've been working on for the last, how long have, has it been? Well, I mean, I've been actually doing the, the writing for the last year, but I've been thinking about it for the last 20 years. Uh, and it's kind of a capstone to that part of my life. I think we all have dreams of writing something that will hopefully be useful to people. So I've tried to encapsulate lessons uh, from that experience. You know, I have other friends who have written books on the company that are more biographical, like Porter Erisman is a really good friend that wrote about his experience. Duncan Clark did one who was, you know, involved with um, the organization early on. But for me, it's based on that education stuff we did um, in the last few years. And I wanted to package that and tell people, uh, you know, the lessons learned. And it's called the Tao of Alibaba because I think that the uh, 
sort of overarching lesson from all this relates to kind of a basic principle of Taoism. Uh, and, and Jack also talks about Tai Chi. Now, I'm, I'm in no way an expert on Taoism or Tai Chi. But what I, what I have learned is that the, um, the existence of these contradictions uh, in, in the organization or you know, in the way that things are done is, is really the answer to a lot of things in life. And what I mean by that is, think about it this way. You have this idea that, you know, small and big. So we focus on small businesses we have the power of a large organization. Uh, East and West, it's Eastern philosophy with Western management practices, right? You have, you know, so many of these different dynamics that are happening within the organization, but what you realize is it's not one or the other, it's actually both. And they go in cycles, like, you know, you might have more Western influence at one point, and then you go back to kind of the more Eastern principles. Or, um, you know, you need to, like one thing we say is, like, we have a long-term vision and plan, but we're constantly iterating kind of real time, right? And so, so you're thinking short-term and long-term. And you're like, well, which is it? Well, it's both. And so I think that's also a lesson we need to take in life is that life is going to go in these, these, uh, sort of these waves and troughs. And, um, you have to be willing to accept that. Uh, but you also have to understand that that's kind of how the world works and, and, and you have to sort of embrace that. And so that's kind of this, this Taoist concept. But I also think if you apply it now to the, where we are now for, you know, for every, action there's an equal opposite reaction right that's physics mm-hmm. but that's also these principles of like Taoism um, and if you look at that sign right it's a yin yang right you have like the the white and the black kind of interloping but you also have this dot right it's like this black is on the white and the white is on the black and those are moments of, of epiphany when you suddenly realize you know kind of the the meaning of these two you, you come to these these realizations and I think that uh Hopefully, that's something that we can think about on a global scale. When we talk about U.S.-China, for example, it's not the U.S. is the best and China sucks right. or China is the best and U.S. sucks. It's more like what can we learn from each other and then integrate that. And I think that my life has been the beneficiary of both America and China. And I think you would probably argue the same. And I have a lot of friends who who have been able to combine both of those and, and and what if we looked at technology what if we looked at like uh, sustainability what if we looked at poverty alleviation and said how can we take the infrastructure like what China's done here and how do we apply that to America why should we be afraid of embracing what works and apply it to the other country and vice versa I think China's actually done a lot of that mm. learned so much from the West in right. the last 40 years uh, but now they, you know, they have their own term for these things. But but clearly they've benefited from that. And why can't the West decide that it's okay to learn something from China and apply that? It's actually happening in in internet. Like you look at how WhatsApp now is adding payments to that. You look at how you know uh, um, Amazon is is mixing you know offline to online retail with um, uh, Whole Foods. That actually was done. So earlier here in China with Hema and these other um, businesses. So uh, same thing with Snapchat and the functionality, like um, live streaming and, and whatnot. Um, so it's okay. Let's just kind of learn from both. And it doesn't have to be black and white. I always wondered about those little dots. <laughs> it's my interpretation, but uh, I mean... Now I know we are the little dots. That's, that's what right, should right. be aspired to be the dot, right? It would be not the same without the little that's dots. That's right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't have that moment of, of, of realization. Wow. I just had a moment of realization. <laughs> Good. Uh, Brian, I want to thank you for taking your time to be on the first season of China from All Angles. Um, the book will be out before the. It's be, hopefully within 2022. This publishing process takes some time, but I'm I'm finishing up 
the manuscript now, and then it needs to kind of okay. That process. Uh, so, so everybody got a little sneak peek here. Yeah. So we can all look out for that uh, sometime next year. Maybe we'll, you know, we can do it again when yeah. when it's actually out. Awesome. I'm sure. Aside from your personal social media accounts, you'd want to direct everybody to radiichina.com. That's right, radiichina.com. Make sure you guys check out the site. There's really great stories uh, about youth culture here in China, uh, music, uh, film, arts, design. Entertainment, it's all in there. Do you want people to follow you anywhere else? I think that's good. Follow me there. <laughs> uh, I'm on my LinkedIn. You can follow me. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. Once again, would like to thank today's China from All Angles guest, Radio's very own Brian Wong. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a comment, hit subscribe, and share with a friend. If you want more content like this, head to radiochina.com. And of course, this podcast could not be made possible without support from East West Bank, the premier financial bridge between the U.S. and China. East West Bank offers unparalleled services for individuals and companies who build connections between the two countries. East West Bank, bridging cultures, bridging opportunities, bridging dreams. For more info, visit eastwestbank.com. Member FDIC and equal housing lender. Radio.